0: The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Audible.com, with more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com culture. And by Ticktail, a social shopping marketplace. Go to ticktail.com culture to create your profile and to see a selection of our favorite products and by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com culture.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap That's Too Old to Be Governable, Too Young to Die edition. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. On today's show, Love and Friendship is the new Whit Stillman movie. It's based on the Jane Austen novella Lady Susan and stars Kate Beckinsale, Tom Bennett, Chloe Sevigny and many others. And then Radiohead has a new record out. We discuss a moon-shaped pool and what it means to be the last great rock band in a post-rock and roll world. We discussed this with Slate's music critic, Carl Wilson. And finally, never to be delimited in our Anglomania, we go three Brit topics this week in honor of our new intern. Television may be the new art cinema, but it will also and always be television. That is a way to shut off the mind as well as enliven it. We discuss Laura Miller's favorite TV comfort food, the British crime procedural Scott and Bailey, and the concept in general of TV as comfort food. Joining me today is Laura Miller. Hey, Laura. Hi. Nice to be here. And uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello,
1: Steve. Hey. Welcome to Brooklyn.
2: I know. To the spanking new. It's kind of got a new car smell here at Slate.
0: Yeah, very much so.
2: Yeah, epoxy and raw ambition.
0: All those chemicals are good for us. (laughs) Uh, and, And we should mention that we haven't murdered Dana. She's just still on book leave. Dana is still on book
2: leave. Julia, before we start, what business do we have?
0: Yeah, two small pieces of business. First, I should mention that in the Slate Plus segment of our show, available only to Slate Plus members, we will be joined by Dan Kois to talk about Catherine Dunn, the wonderful author of Geek Love, a wonderful book which plays a unique role in the American literary landscape. And I also wanted to flag for our listeners that Slate Plus is producing a special members-only podcast about this season of Game of Thrones. It has a rotating cast of hosts, including June Thomas, Seth Stevenson, Dan Coyce, Willa Paskin. It is a delightful compliment to the show. If you are watching it, I was very gratified this week to note that Dan Coyce made note of how terrible Ramsey Bolton was with a knife. He's his sigil is the flayed man and he was peeling an apple like by having it. Like it was it was Notable he how poor ol- his knife skills are. He can are. men.
1: He can't flay apples. I'm sorry, but if you were good at flaying men, you would yeah. definitely be yeah, good at yeah, peeling it, apples. It's because apples can't scream while he's doing it.
0: Anyway, it was preposterous and it was noted on our excellent podcast. Noted. So lots of good reasons for podcast listeners to join. Plus, uh, you can do that at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, let's begin. Glorious. In a sense, the film director,
2: Witt Stillman, has always been adapting Jane Austen. That is even when his work has been about modern-day American preppies. He's taken up as a comedian of fine manners, the preoccupations of Austen, that is, with drawing out meaning and morals from the outer lives of the overly, often stupidly privileged. Now Stillman returns with an actual Austen adaptation, Love and Friendship, is based on Austen's epistolary novella, Lady Susan. It tells the story of the scheming title character. She, a widow of little means but quite a reputation, maneuvers her way through the manor houses of her acquaintances and in-laws in search of two husbands, one for her, one for her daughter. Let's Listen to a clip.
3: I'm sorry, have I done anything that's dishonoured
0: you or father? To honour means, among other things, to listen with respect to a parent's sincere counsel. I do listen with respect, Mama. It's just that, that... If you will not pay attention to me, then perhaps you will to a larger imperative. The law of the universe. An offer as splendid as Sir James's is not likely to come around again. He has offered you the one thing he has of value to give. His income and reproach myself, having shielded you for far too long. Had I let you starve a little bit more, you would resist much less. Mama, I was often hungry at school. Oh, evidently not hungry enough. In any case, the starvation of the schoolhouse is nothing like that of the destitute.
1: Is that what you want? No. I can see Sir James is a kind man, and if it weren't a matter of marriage, I'm sure I could like him
3: marriages for one's whole life. Not
0: in my experience. Uh,
2: Laura, let's start with you. I mean, my feeling uh, is you could have dropped the needle anywhere on this album, and you would have come up with some extraordinary dialogue. Um, Stillman, of course, is best known for Metropolitan, his breakthrough indie movie in 1990, and then uh, Barcelona, Last Days of Disco. This is his first period movie. What'd you make of it?
1: I really enjoyed it, and it's a great adaptation of a book that's kind of an outlier in Austin's body of work. It's a piece of juvenilia, a novella that she wrote when she was about 19 years old, and never sought to have published. And it's very much in the style of the previous century, in the style of the 18th century, rather than in the sort of early sort of 19th century mode that she would eventually go on to write in. So it to me, that makes it more perfectly suited to Witt Stillman than the later Austen novels, because he has always been really interested in the idea of morality as a performance, more so than she really was in 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 the novels that she's most famous for. And Lady Susan is just a classic Witt Stillman character in a way. She's basically the female version of the character who's usually played by the great, great Chris Eigemann in Witt Stillman movies.
2: He's an avid listener of this podcast. Oh, well, shout out to him. Thrilled to hear the shout out. Um, Julia, what do you think of it?
1: It was a very
0: fun, you know, meringue of 90 minutes at the movie. It was just delightful. Uh, I did not know that Kate Beckinsale, who I know primarily as being a very smart woman who on screen is mostly getting like ravaged by werewolves. She's uh funny and a stone cold bitch in this production, uh and her icy, nimble, ruthless manipulations are incredibly delightful to witness. I also thought there was a real lightness of touch in the production. The characters are introduced in a very witty way that there's some use of text on screen which you associate more with like people urgently sending each other direct messages in House of Cards than uh, you know Merchant Ivory looking costume adaptations (laughs) but there's sort of like you know scrolly type font that appears on the screen at a few key moments to great comedic effect Uh, and the whole thing doesn't make itself out to be more than it is which makes it quite entertaining
3: Mm.
2: Uh, I have to say I I absolutely loved it I wasn't convinced I was going to as many as 10 minutes into it, and then I fell for it hard and completely. I've always admired Witt Stillman and been slightly skeptical of his work, that it had to involve a mode of exaggeration and caricature in order to make an American comedy of manners about this preppy world, which essentially I grew up in. And um, But this is the perfect medium for him, absolutely. And not only that, it not only somewhat revives Witt Stillman's career, it also revives my faith in the American costume drama adaptation of a great British novelist's work, which Laura often end up missing the point completely somehow that they're, you know, it's sort of the great age of bodices and intrigue often fall flat and seem to miss the wit of the original works. But here, it's a perfect marriage of sensibilities.
1: Well, one of the things that makes this material really good for what you're talking about is that it doesn't really have a big love story in it. And I think often when people are adapting those 19th century novels, they focus on the sort of romance element because I think there's this belief that that's what the, the sort of core audience for those movies want. And so what gets sacrificed is the more precise little jokes about people's behavior that is really what makes the novel so much fun to read
0: right the the utterly gem-like social observations which are incredibly astute and deadpan are the true pleasures of reading jane austen no matter how much you ship elizabeth bennet and mr darcy <laughs> um which I'll certainly confess to doing but but the you know the best character in Pride and Prejudice is Mrs. Bennett, right? It's like incredibly fun. It's so
1: hard. What about Lady Catherine de Bourgh (laughs) (laughs) and Mr. Collins? There's
0: many, 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 many good ones. It's true. I think that's sort of what's charming here is that the thing that is often seen is the the sprinkles on the love cupcake of a Jane Austen novel, but which are actually – you know the I love the, that metaphor. the tender the tender crumb of that of that cake.
3: <laughs>
1: no, um,
0: it's a conceit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it going.
0: Um, you know, this movie sort of flips the flips the emphasis in a way that is
1: is really lovely. And she's she's sort of an anti heroine, I guess. You know, she's the main character, but she's not a good person, and she's so adept at manipulating everyone around her. That she's sort of a pleasure to watch. She's like a, a little like Becky Sharp from from Vanity Fair, but she's not lowborn, and she's so she, she's not really a climber. She's she's really just like out for her own pleasure and advantage more than anything else. she really well, and
2: possibly for the you know advantage of her daughter, which is the one. Rodino yeah, she wants her daughter, quality.
1: her her daughter, to marry a rich man so that she doesn't have to worry anymore mm-hmm. financially. Yeah. That's her. True. That's her. She doesn't actually care about her daughter at all.
2: It was interesting what you said about it being more a novel of the 18th century than the 19th century, and also it having kind of a Becky Sharp like highborn Becky Sharp figure at the center of it. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. I don't remember another character like her in Austen's.
1: No. I mean, well, the characters who are like her in Austen's novels are are like Maria Crawford and, mm-hmm. in Mansfield Park or um, maybe Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. I mean, there are fast-talking manipulators who are very good at sort of counterfeiting the proper behavior. I mean, the totally delicious Austenian irony of this is that she seduces – her sort of sister-in-law's brother, not by being a saucy flirt, which is what everyone expects her to be, but by being very sort of solemn, and sort of sincere and, and and moral and sort of, you know, he tries to engage her in this raillery, and she's like, you know, she, she's very dignified. And the joke of it is that by not being flirtatious, she's flirting with him. You know, that is, is a really 18th century concept, the idea that you know, virtue is a is just, is almost like a performance, and that there are all these layers of falseness underneath it. And what I think, when you read Lady Susan, because it's in the form of letters, what it is most remin- reminiscent of is a book whose title I'm probably not going to pronounce very well, but um, so I'm just going to use the English translation: um, "Dangerous Liaisons," and and that is letters back and forth between two aristocrats who are having a seduction competition, and they're, they say exactly the sort of things that Lady Susan says, you know, like there's nothing more delightful than, you know, taking someone who used to disdain you and putting them under your heel. <laughs> it's just – it's completely this sort of power game mm-hmm. for them, as it is really for her. She seduces her sister-in-law's brother just to get back at her sister mm-hmm. and and to sort of flatter her own vanity, but, but really she – it's really to get back at her sister, who doesn't, who correctly does not believe her virtuous performance. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you, Laura. I think we've talked about this in the
0: context of other things on the show before. But what you make of various Jane Austen resurgences? I mean, Jane Austen is eternal, and and may may it ever be thus. But you know, another thing that just came out right now is Curtis Sittenfeld's book, Eligible, which is a modernized adaptation of Pride and Prejudice set in Cincinnati to great comic effect in my view. And why do, you, I mean, Whit Stillman and Curtis Sittenfeld are interesting artists with things to say about the world. Why, what did, What should we make, if anything, of, of them revisiting Austin at this particular moment?
1: Well, I think that if you don't count Much Ado About Nothing, basically Jane Austen invented the romantic comedy of the sort of dueling lovers who get together in the end. And it is just a really... It's like a no fail storyline, and so there. So you can always sort of follow that. In fact, many writers do, even if they're not explicitly adapting Pride and Prejudice, and get readers or viewers interested in like, will they get together or or won't they? And so it's it's reliable. I would say that, but. Um, not always i don't not not to my mind all that satisfying because again like i the love stories are maybe not the thing that i really read her for although i like them and for that reason, Emma is really my favorite of her books because what I love best about them is this depiction of this sort of provincial life, these these people who all live in this town together and they've all known each other forever and the w- ways that they interact with each other and the roles that people play in these little communities that they live in and the way that certain people just drive you crazy but you can't get away from them. That never, ever becomes not true. Whereas I think... Curtis Sittenfeld is a really smart writer and very talented. I think that when you read Eligible, you just sit there thinking, well, how is she going to finesse this? How is she going to finesse that? Because courtship means something so different now from what it meant back then. And the stakes are just not as high. And so it doesn't feel as urgent I mean,
0: ineligible. what Curtis Sittenfeld does is use the biological clock to raise the stakes. And she she transposes what it means to be an aged single woman into modern terms. And so Jane, uh, the eldest sister, Jane, is 40 or 39. I think she turns 40 during the course of the novel. And Elizabeth Bennett is 38. And the questions about fertility and child rearing become the unbreachable constants that class and money and inheritance and you know, women's position in society were in Jane Austen. And I found it's hard to like truly respect a book that is so derivative, but I found it pretty delightful. And part of why I asked about it is that I do think the act of transposing those that social commentary and those social mores to the modern moment and and that mental exercise. It's fun to watch a writer as good as Curtis Sittenfeld doing that, even if even if if the result is something that you know, doesn't really feel wholly original or new enough to completely merit how derivative it is.
2: All right. Well, we agree this uh, Stillman adaptation is wonderful. Yes, yeah. people should go see it. Okay. And if you do come tell us what you thought of it at Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. The movie is Love and Friendship, directed by Whit Stillman, starring Kate Beckinsale. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to our listeners this week by Audible. Audible has a special offer for our listeners and is offering a free 30-day trial membership and one free audiobook. We have a recommendation for an audiobook that our listeners might enjoy. Laura, what were you going to suggest?
1: Well, doubling down on our anglophilia here, I'm going to recommend the audiobook of Anthony Trollope's novel, Dr. Thorne, read by Simon Vance, the great Simon Vance, who Dana was praising in an earlier show, one of the Titans of audiobook narration, there is a adaptation of Dr. Thorne by Julian Fellows that is going to be released on, I think Amazon uh, in a couple weeks. And so I was returning to the book for that. and it's just it's so great. it has a lot of the same hilarious, you know, characters that are, give themselves airs or are ridiculous or are, touching or it's it's he's really austin's heir in many ways and once you have sampled the gateway drug of any of trollope's novels in the series the chronicles of barsetshire you will become hooked uh, that sounds delectable I've been looking for an excuse to
0: check out Dana Simon Vance's recommendation, so that sounds quite pleasing. Audible has a bunch of special features. One of my favorites and one that makes me feel I'm living in the future is WhisperSync for voice, which lets you switch back and forth between reading the text version of a book on your Kindle and then listening to the audiobook without losing your place. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership and one free audio book. Go to audible.com culture and browse more than 250,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com culture and get started today.
2: All right. Moving on. It's been 30 or so years since radio had formed and nearly 25 since their breakthrough hit Creep. Since then, they've taken over what is an increasingly obscure mantle as the last great rock and roll band uh, that you could argue they took that over from U2. And they've passed off any instinct to be crowd-pleasing to their milquetoast doppelganger Coldplay. They've also increasingly experimented with dissolving song structures with electronic and orchestral soundscapes while eschewing the trappings of rock stardom and the music biz. As such, it is sometimes hard to separate out Radiohead from the cult of Radiohead, hard to hear their music through all the recrimination and sociology that surrounds it. To help us do that, we're joined by Carl Wilson Slates, music critic and chief taste sociologist. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Tell us what it is about Radiohead that um, seems to require charts and pie graphs to get at the essence of them.
4: Well, I think it is that aura of the last great rock band that surrounds them. You know, the Radiohead kind of rose to prominence, aside from their, that early sort of one-off hit single, Creep, that era where records like OK Computer and Kid A and Amnesia came out was kind of the post-grunge, post-mid-90s twilight of the rock era. And in some ways, they were the only band that in a mainstream way seemed to be putting out quote unquote, important records at the time. And so I think they garnered this kind of mystique around them, because they were kind of applying themselves to this dying art form in this kind of artisanal way at the time. And in a lot of ways, you know, I'm a little older, I think, than the than the central demographic of Radiohead fans. And I think for a lot of people still in their thirties, they're kind of the rolling stones of their generation. They're a band that people attach themselves to and will never detach from as long as they live. And mm-hmm. I think that that creates this kind of skewed dynamic around the music where, it, where the the worship is so exaggerated that I think for anybody who doesn't feel part of the cult, it's very, hard to um listen to it just just as just as music
2: right and a central part of the cult is that you know carl as an art form becomes irrelevant it becomes progressive in the direction of esoterica i mean they were really deconstructing the rock song and doing a lot of uh, very atmospheric uh diffuse uh, styles of music uh, talk a little bit just about the sound of the band
4: Well, yeah, I mean, they started as kind of a very straightforward, like slightly prog-rocky rock rock band, and then became increasingly interested in electronics during a time when that was really where a lot of the action was musically, Um, and picking up on the experimentation of, of particularly British electronic artists and trying to incorporate that into their sound. And then gradually the guitarist Johnny Greenwood as well has gotten Um, He has more of a compositional background than the rest of the band and has increasingly applied himself to that. And so those textures, sort of orchestral textures and that kind of things as well as the electronic ones came to be really prominent. And it's interesting because in some ways I think the cult really centers around the period when – they were still a more or less straightforward rock band who were kind of taking on big futurist themes about technology and social anxiety on those levels and and were kind of profound in a in a rock band profound way, like sort of vague maunderings about social problems. And then I think they got, as they became more sort of musically abstract and in some ways their fans as well have struggled with their direction, you know their last record, King of Limbs from five years ago didn't really get that much traction with fans because it was so sort of centered on those textural experiments. And this new album, Moonshaped Pool, really tries to find a sort of sweet spot in the middle of all of that, I think.
0: Okay, well, can I confess that I basically think I'd never really listened to a Coldplay song before preparing for this segment? Like, I just don't. You mean mean
4: a Radiohead song? (laughs) 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 (laughs)
0: Exactly. I file them. I I recognize that this is... Uh, you know like total uh, heresy but like they just are both filed in my head as sort of like anthemic British Rocky don't listen to it and I know that like Coldplay's the lame one and Radiohead's the quote unquote cool one and that you know Chris Martin is a doofus and uh, Tom York Tom York is a person whose name I know uh, (laughs) is a genius um, etc but I like have no direct experience of it so I listened to The Moon Shaped Pool this weekend and was like like what pleasant music what interesting things they're doing with strings this is this is not something i will listen to very much again but i found it less uh i don't know what i was expecting some kind of like abstruse puddle i don't know it it, it, it had lots of little bits of textural interest but let's listen to a clip a little bit because i'm curious to hear how steve you've related to the band over time recognize that the set of things I just said sounds like the caricature of me as the poptimist jerk to your raucous snob what do you think of Radiohead oh, and man. have I offended your delicate sensibilities
2: not, not at all I, I'm, I'm not a member of the cult of Radiohead at all uh, I thought that if one in the 90s began to liberate oneself as a raucous snob from the need to see one's own music be commercially relevant and you know, more broadly culturally relevant you could kind of get away from the classic rock lineage altogether and you wouldn't really bother listening to Radiohead. I mean, th- to me, the interesting thing about them is the degree to which they presumed upon a tradition in order to dismantle it. And if you were beyond that need you know, for bands to sort of sound like U2 and sort of sound like they could orally, A-U-R-A-L-L, why fill a stadium that, that had an anthemic tenor to their music and had a kind of guinea rock god martyrs their lead singer if you if you got rid of all of those paradigms you you didn't really need radiohead in your life at all that said i think they made three tremendous albums in the 90s like really kind of era defining rock and roll albums in those post-grunge years where there was some commercial relevance to the art form so like the ben's kid a and uh, the ben's OK computer and kid a the great records i just never listened to them so um carl i think you made this point astutely in your piece which is You know, if you really wanted to get away from that kind of song structure and a lot of the, you know, slightly outmoded theatrics of rock and roll, you could go way further away from them than Radiohead.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, and and in some ways, I think that's where my stakes were at the time. So I really, you know, went through and we're all sort of echoing each other a little bit here. It's too bad that there's nobody standing up for the cult a little more intensely. But I really like I hated them. (laughs) <laughs> you know i i i would never say out loud at the time that i hated them because i didn't want to get into the kinds of conversations that that would then breed but i thought they were sort of full of shit pretentious brit nonsense and really like boring boring rock nonsense and because there was so much interesting underground and independent music being made at the time that was a lot noisier and and clumsier and coming from all kinds of other angles but now I have the same reaction as Julia when I go back and listen to those things now. You know, I listen to OK Computer for the first time in probably a decade just in the run-up to this album coming out on May 8th. And I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And like I was shocked to find myself just having a pleasant time listening to Radiohead and realizing that everything that had seemed at stake in the various forms of forward-lookingness that we thought about in the late rock era. Just none of that seems to be at stake anymore. You know, it feels like the argument's over.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is this is what's interesting about them now. I think it's just the politics of taste gets between people and this music, and once they you know, somehow penetrate those politics, the music is entirely pleasant on its own merits. But the question, I think, Carl, is, well, why? Like, why is there, why was it so important in the 90s and in the aughts for there to be a backlash against a certain kind of you know, rock and roll band and a certain kind of rock snob that was presumed, you know, formed their fan base?
4: I think that it was that there was a social dominance question going on, you know, and it was kind of the leftover kind of, you know, this is a slightly boring answer, but kind of the leftover cultural dominance of the baby boom, and that all of those kind of classic rock values corresponded to kind of a white guy collector mentality of how to approach listening to music and what music was about and so it felt important to to decenter that and destabilize it and any kind of music that was working to do that felt like it had not just you know musical and social but like even political resonance on that level and in some ways now it just i think that decentering is complete and we don't feel like the you know the nerdy White, you know, guitar solo fancier is dominating our musical taste and discussion anymore.
2: Um, I think there's one way to penetrate all the claptrap around Radiohead, which is to give Laura Miller a taste test because she <laughs> is a Radiohead virgin and well,
1: not anymore. I just heard one. Oh, now. okay.
2: Um, but we could play Coldplay and Radiohead and see if she can tell the difference. <laughs> All right. All right. Here is audio clip number one.
3: Two jumps in a week. Bet you think that's pretty clever, don't you, boy? Flying on your motorcycle. You know,
2: And now let's listen to audio clip number two.
3: When you try your best but you don't succeed When you get what you want but not what you need when you feel so tired but you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come streaming down your face
1: Okay, so they're both pretty uninteresting to me, and they both sound a lot like you 2 to Mm -hmm. me, which is pretty much the point at which I checked out of this particular genre of entertainment. I guess I would say I like the second one a little bit more than the first one, and also think that the second one might be Radiohead – only on the <laughs> everyone's like smirking. At I don't me. know anything. I'm seeing. I'm seeing. I'm seeing some, I some a poker faces face in it, the
2: booth. Poke, poker faces. Don't look at the yeah, booth.
1: The, Metcalf, look in the, booth. the Metcalf poker face is pretty good. But Julia's I well, But I'm, I'm without <laughs> don't know. knowledge. Okay. So All right. I don't. All right. Well, yeah. But you at least have listened to one Radiohead album, which is more than I can say. Just because people were talking about something about textural, and that sounded like it had more interesting instruments going on mm. in it, but I don't really know even what textural means, so, um, <laughs> so, but, you know, it and it sounded a little bit weirder and a little bit less like some guy strumming on a guitar at a party where you thought you were going to have a good time, and now he's singing. Okay,
2: all right, and for, the, <laughs> and for the record, I have resting smirk face, so you can't take anything from it. Julia, what do you think?
1: Definitely
0: of the two clips, the second one seems more musically interesting in that it's like not primarily a guitar driving things, it seems like. It feels like there's like organs and the vocal is really prominent and other things hang back a little bit more. And because I did listen to the Radiohead album, the voice sounded a little bit more. Tom York, I guess. I guess I'm going to say number one, Coldplay, number two, Radiohead, and I like number two better. The lyrics are better, All too. All
2: right, so you're, you're in agreement with one another, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Carl, tell them tell him what's happened here.
4: You're both wrong. <laughs> yeah. <Fuck. laughs> you, you got it
2: exactly wrong. And, and, and it, what's so great about that is that there are legions of people, at least 15 million people on this planet, whose entire identity is constructed around the difference, like the ontologically distinct categories of Coldplay and Radiohead.
4: Even I, who uh, do not stake any of my identity on that, really was sitting there going like, oh, this is too obvious. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. The first one was High and Dry by Radiohead, and the second one was Fix You by Coldplay.
2: It occurs to me, Carl, we just had a wine tasting, W-H-I-N-E. Oh, oh, oh.
0: <laughs> can, can I make one point, though, that I will say in this lineage that we're describing of sort of Rolling Stones to U2, to these these bands duking it out, I will say, like, U2 is so corny compared to both of these bands in its aspiration, and it's so much, like, zazzier and goofier and shoutier and sweaty. Like, I mean, U2 in some ways is the most self-important thing that's any, ever been made by anyone anywhere, but there's something, like, lovably, like, theater geek about it or, like, show busy about it or something. There's something a little yeah, less that's... rarefied that I I think maybe my taste in anthemic in rock from that region. I like a little few more sequins attached. That's all so <laughs> awful. I'm just, I'm just shuddering. All right. Well, there's some set of our listenership that will never uh, take me or Laura seriously again. <laughs>
4: um, I, one thing I can say in favor of that Fix You song um, from Coldplay is- just to make me seem a little more redeemable as, a, as <laughs> less of a snob. There's a beautiful um, version in this documentary, Young at Heart, in which a senior's choir sings that song, and it suddenly becomes all about sort of nursing and health, and it becomes this incredibly moving song. It's, it's a really incredible transformation. People should look that up.
2: Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, the piece that Carl has up right now on Slate is called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Radiohead. Our guest is Carl Wilson, Slate Music Critic. Carl, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much to all of you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have?
0: Today's episode of the Culture Gab Fest is also brought to our listeners by Ticktail, a social shopping marketplace. Go to ticktail.com slash culture to create your profile and discover independent brands around the world. If you shop primarily online, which is how I shop these days, thanks to time constraints and life constraints. You may find, as I do, that it is very easy to reorder things from places that you're familiar with, go to a couple outlets that you trust, you basically know what you're going to get, because you've seen their merch before. So I think that online shopping tends to be a little bit more less adventurous and less about discovering new things. than not so browsy. It's not so browsy. You're not like wandering around a boutique and being like, oh, I never knew that I was interested in You know, a small enameled jar, but this small (laughs) enameled jar is delightful. Uh, Ticktail collects interesting work from artisans around the globe and is a marketplace where you can see lots of cool things all in one spot. They have beautiful clothing, accessories, and home decor, and each brand has a profile page so you get to know the designers behind the products. You can create a free profile to save items you like and follow your favorite stores. One product available on Ticktail is the Bud Vase in a pear shape by Veet Ceramics. Find this and other decor and fashion items on Ticktail. Go to ticktail.com culture and set up your own profile to start discovering independent brands around the world. That's ticktail.com culture.
2: All right. Moving on. Scott and Bailey is a Brit import crime procedural. It might best be described as the love child between prime suspect and Cagney and Lacey. Laura Miller, you're going to kill me. (laughs) Revenge for the Coldplay segment. Um, But I'd say it's much more in the prime suspect lineage than Cagney and Lacey. Anyway, it was co-created by Diane Taylor and Sally Wainwright. Sally Wainwright is also known for Happy Valley. It stars Leslie Sharp Saran Jones and Amelia Bulmore. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip.
3: If either one of you ever,
2: ever lets me down over this, I will come after you and I will kill you, both of you, and I will get away with it
3: because I know how. I'm really sorry, Jill. Good. <sighs> uh,
0: <I've clears throat> Have I still got a job? Yes.
1: Um, would you like a drink? Yes. I'll get you a glass. Okay. So it's um, I did not actually ever watch *Cagney and Lacey* because it was on the air when I was in college and had better things to do it with my evenings. But it's um, about two police women who are constables, I believe, in in some kind of detective vision. I could never get the exact organization of these things straight, and then. Their female boss is the person who's chewing them out in that segment. And it's a procedural. You know, what's satisfying about them is that within one or two episodes, whatever the puzzle of the day is, the crime that needs to be solved is solved. And then there's also this sort of ongoing, you know, interpersonal drama in the first season – The um, Saran Jones, who is the single woman constable, is in a completely improper relationship with the lawyer played by Rupert Graves, and it just gets worse and worse and worse from there. And She totally screws up, and everybody has to deal with that. And uh, this is like what I lie in bed at night looking for on Netflix and Hulu. And when I found this on Hulu Plus, I was just like, this is heaven for me. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, you it's just a kind of a in a way a hybrid, right? You get some of the satisfactions of a long story arc over the course of a season and many of the satisfactions of standalone episodes. Laura, what was interesting about this to me is that so much of high-end, you know, desirable streaming TV now is dis- is discomfort food, right? It's like it's like pointedly dark. And, you know, it filled with dread and uh, a a lot of uh, social commentary. It's not absent from this, but um, it's much more in the direction of what we think of as uh, network TV. And yet I totally dug it. I thought it was beautifully done. I'm hooked. I love the female principles. They're marvelous. So uh, I thank you for putting me onto it.
0: I definitely enjoyed the episodes I watched and will certainly add it to my list of things I watch when I don't have uh, more brain space available to watch something more complicated. But it does – it did make me think about the status of a comfort food TV in the modern media landscape. And in the post-Law and Order age – I mean for me, Law & Order is just the absolute classic comfort TV. It is utterly predictable and yet the variations on the theme are – mesmerizing and it's, like, comforting to watch all these people – like, it's crazy. It's comforting to watch all of these dead bodies be discovered and then people methodically try to figure out who did it and then put them away or not put them away with a 75 to 80 percent success ratio, Uh, you know, with every five episodes or so. The, like, bad guy gets <laughs> off and everybody shakes their head in the elevator and then it dings and then start a new episode, you know, like – But why? Why is that comforting? And it's obviously related to the comfort of a crime novel, right, which is uh, just like a mystery, right? A mystery plot, a whodunit, the propulsive narrative of like wondering about how something transpired. But it's not – it's never that mysterious in the TV procedurals because you can see it coming – Five miles away, based on the casting. I mean, it's harder to tell through the the, the kind of looking glass of British TV. But, you, you know, you can't... Like, why? Why? Why are these shows so satisfying? Mm. Why was it that last week... I did not get nearly as much flack as I thought I would, by the way, for confessing at length last week to how much Law & Order SVU I watched while I was sick. But, like, why, why... I never watched that show unless... I'm sick and my mental capacities are below 50% of what they are.
1: And I think a quality of the Comfort TV watches because I can't get that from SVU because it's too – it's a set in New York and it's too creepy. And, you know, like the thing that I like about British crime series is that they're just exotic enough – but still familiar, and so it's just ha- this. All this stuff is happening in Manchester. It's like it takes me away from sort of the problem. are driving on the other side of the road. Yeah, yeah. They they are. They have these great expressions when her her boyfriend is stringing her along. Her friend says he's twirling her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> or, that was so um, great.
0: <laughs> also, the, s- several times in the pilot, they talk about whether various women are best shut of various men. Yeah, you're best yeah. shut of him. Yeah, mm. Yeah. They never say that on SVU.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think it's probably probably hard to be comforted by importance or self-importance. And a lot of television drama, you know, brings with it not only kind of an urgency to watch it in order to feel contemporary and plugged in, but also an urgency to talk about it afterwards. You know, the conversation surrounding Transparent or Breaking Bad is – Absolutely, of both online and in your personal life, is absolutely of a piece of of watching it, and there is something intrinsically comforting about watching something which has no social urgency to it, and from which one in a million years wouldn't dream of carrying on a long you know uh, exegetical dissection after it's having un- seen it it's just and it's defined by its solidity as much as by its gimmicks or jolts and solidity is just intrinsically comfortable
0: it's undissectable it's undiscussable i mean there's like a reason that we don't usually talk about procedurals on the show right mm-hmm. but they also i mean i actually think SVU is slightly different because of the subject area in which it has situated itself. And I think we could actually do, like, a crazy great segment about that show if I could ever get anybody else to watch more than a minute of it. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, like, you know, even um, The Good Wife, which is a show that was much watched and much discussed and which just concluded, it's just had a season finale a couple weeks ago, was a procedural paired with a serial drama that had things to say about political wives and feminism and women in power and all sorts of stuff I gather from pieces I've read about it because I didn't watch it very much. But even it was less like urgently discussable than some of the other shows because from what I gather, it really did have like a law case every week that they had to, you know, fight and win mm-hmm. or not. Uh, yeah, what is what is the comfort in the un, the uncomplicated object? It's I mean, a
1: really subtle balance between the familiar and the surprising, you know, not, you know, like you don't want it to be too obvious. I mean, most kind of bad procedurals eventually get too bored of. And I think the Law & Order franchise, however cheesy or sometimes just kind of creepy it could be, there was still a lot of ingenuity going into sort of the plot structure. So Mm -hmm. even if you did kind of know who who did it, how they were going to figure it out, Mm -hmm. and the exact way that it was done was always – kind of fun to see that that little like it's almost like a clockwork Mm -hmm.
2: toy operate yeah
1: do you think that we will
0: ever I mean you know it's interesting we talked about Jane Austen and the dawn of the romantic comedy uh, as a reason for people's continuing interest in her in our first segment because in some ways of course the romantic comedy is dead half dead and or underappreciated and certainly not a, a heavy part of Hollywood's production schedules right now and I think the procedural, too, just in light of our radio conversation, makes me wonder, will we ever have a Poptimist moment around procedurals? Like, will we ever be, uh, have the moment where critics split and say, like, why are you all chasing the four people watching transparent, or the however many people that they'll never tell us on streaming, and ignoring the ingenuity and art of these, like, perfect mm. bubblegum confections that push all of our pleasure centers? And, you know, like, can you, you make a similar argument about the underappreciation of the the clever plot mechanics and satisfactions of procedural TV?
1: That's interesting. I, I, it's really hard to say because unlike pop, which had uncool associations, but most, mostly with young people, I mean, the whodunits are kind of seen as a sort of aging person's taste. Are mm-hmm. the teenagers like it? Because teenagers usually go through an Agatha Christie phase. And then like it's the show your mom watches. And so, you know, Law & Order or CSI or any number of these sort of... Bones, I went through a Bones, Bones. phase. Oh, yeah. But the thing about Bones was that it had this sort of bantering Howard Hoxian sort of thing going on between the two you leads. You're giving Bones
0: a lot of credit. In the,
1: in, the, in the early days. In the very early When
2: Hox was directing the early episodes,
1: Yeah, so it was
3: yeah. Yeah.
1: But it had a kind of a screwball comedy you know, will they, won't they sort of romance going on that was treated as totally frivolous by the, you know, it wasn't like moonlighting where it's like you really wanted them to get together. You almost didn't want them to because they made so many jokes about how they were never going to. So it's kind of terminally uncool. I just don't see how it could be reconceived. But way. like,
0: but but if you think about the failures of True Detective Season 2, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Isn't that a show that like woefully misunderstands the importance and value of the proper construction of a mystery plot. I mean, the first Absolutely. one, like, maybe you can argue that it was intentional and they kind of get away with it with all the metaphysical hooey they ended with. But the second one was just a disaster. And when you look at Game of Thrones, which I think of as, like, a premium show that's actually – a. a, a, a I don't think Game of Thrones really has anything to say about the world. But I think it's a great entertainment. And the plotting – the plot architecture there is actually, like – very canny, I think, just because they have so many pieces they're trying to move around. But like plot seems so hard to get right. And these shows do it just week after week. And I do I have definitely had in the post law and order era, there's just like so many news stories where I'm like, it's so sad, there'll never be a law and order of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I feel like you kind of want to see what they're going to do with it. And I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this alternate universe where there's a critical valuation of the procedural. It's it's Gaga, right? It's it's never going to happen.
2: Uh, the only reason I think it might is when you watch something like Vinyl on HBO, and you feel as though they completely avoided working out the plot mechanics of it in favor of all the cliches from super premium dark TV, and and that'll kind of intersect with the generational change, and that'll become you know your your parents' TV, just a bunch of these old warhorse, you know, shows with the same set of. You know, kind of ossified cliches about how dark you know, American life is and how prone to violence and on and on and on. And I could see people returning to something much more.
0: Well, because the other thing is that a, a cracking plot is like such a powerful drug that if somebody figured out a way to produce that kind of compulsive television while also adding some interesting ideas to it, I mean I suppose fans of Game of Thrones would argue that that is what is happening there, that seems like a potent weapon mm-hmm. in the artillery for some aspiring person to like pick up and play with um
2: all right well the show is called uh, scott and bailey it's an itv import i believe it's on hulu plus and you can find it on hulu plus uh if you know it or check it out and have feelings about it come tell us about them at facebook.com slash culture all right now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor julia turner what do we have?
0: Slate's Culture Gab Fest is brought to listeners by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. With Rocket Mortgage, you can get approved for a mortgage using your phone or tablet. This completely online process uses cutting-edge technology to make getting a mortgage more convenient than ever before. You no longer have to deal with the frustration of digging through stacks of financial documents. Now you can safely share bank statements and pay stubs with the touch of a button. So if you're looking to refinance or to buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com culture. Quicken and Loans is an equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030.
2: All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Laura Miller. What do you have?
1: I have this old movie that I discovered through some circuitous path on the internet that is on YouTube. It's called Le Romans de Renard, The Tale of the Fox. It's a French stop-action animation film from 1930 and it's so it's around the same time as you know King Kong but it's basically the f- french folkloric character Renard the Fox uh, who's sort of a trickster character and it's the most charming funny clever thing i have ever seen in stop action animation like every little all the little gestures of it's all animals all these little animals in in a fairy tale story and just their Gestures, the settings are so beautiful. It's really incredible. I've never heard of it before. And if Dana wasn't in Communicado right now, maybe I'd know more about it because I I sent her a message, but I never heard back. I thought surely she would know about it. Um, So I don't know anything about it. It's just gorgeous and it's on YouTube.
2: That sounds marvelous. Um, Julia, what do you have?
1: I also have an animal recommendation today,
0: but it's not art, it's nonfiction. I endorsed actually a couple months ago a series of books by David Peters, which are these just very, very detailed illustrations of all kinds of crazy creatures. There's one about dinosaurs and other early reptiles. There's one about giants, just every big thing that ever lived on the planet. And there's one called Strange Creatures. And the books have beautiful illustrations. There's always sort of a random 80s like scuba diver or jogger like going through the scene to help you get a sense of scale. (laughs) And in a very fine type, The book gives you the latest of like mid-90s science about these creatures, so it's not all fully up to date, and uh, have a little title that says extinct or not extinct. Uh, And one of the most strange creatures in Strange Creatures is the goblin shark, which has sort of its mouth under its head and an incredibly long, flat snout that looks sort of like a shovel um, and weird eyes that seem to swivel up and down. And it just looks so freakish that I assumed it to be extinct. But I finally read a bunch of the copy next to the picture. The book's quite long, so we have to abridge continually when reading to children. Uh, and I learned that it is not actually extinct; it's alive. There are goblin sharks; they exist. Uh, they're, and, they're living among us. They're out there. They are out there. They were. I think they discovered skeletons in the 19th century, but then finally found real ones. And for the first time in my life, gleaned useful content from Shark Week because my son <laughs> likes to get me to show him videos of of whales and sharks on the Internet. And so I Googled Goblin Shark and found this great – minute and 45 second clip which is simultaneously like the perfect stupid shark week thing or what I assume shark week to be which is like out of nowhere comes the most alien creature ever to roll our seas <laughs> um, but meanwhile it's this beautiful underwater cinematography of this crazy shark which does two things that are insane. Number one, its snout is full of like electric sensors so it kind of just like rubs its snout around in the dirt at the bottom of the ocean and it can sense whether there's creatures hiding underneath because it senses their uh, the electricity in their skin, and then its entire jaw springs out like a jack-in-the-box from its body to grab fish. And there's this footage, this Shark Week footage of it like just gobbling a huge red snapper with this retractable jaw. It's a crazy creature. Also, my children don't get that it's a goblin shark, and they think it's a gobbling shark because they have now watched 60 times this video of it gobbling this thing. Anyway, it's a mesmerizing video. Highly endorse the existence of the goblin shark, and this specific Shark Week clip, which we will share on our page.
2: Okay, so percentage likelihood that the production designer of the movie Alien was familiar (laughs) with the
0: The goblin goblin shark. shark. I mean, honestly, that was part of my husband's and my response to it was like, Hollywood is so lame and boring. Like, this is a much more interesting, scary fucking thing than anything we've ever seen on screen.
2: When was the last time you saw the original Alien?
0: Never seen the original
2: Alien. Oh, my God. Okay, so now I have an endorsement. I was kind of (laughs) teetering on the edge of a boring one. But um, I think humanity divides into two broad categories, people who think alien is a masterpiece and people who think aliens is a masterpiece. And the second are worthy only of eternal perdition because alien is one of the best – Hollywood genre movies ever made 1979 directed by Ridley Scott starring Sigourney Weaver made her a huge international star it is a flawless movie it is saturated in weirdness and atmosphere it's lugubrious it's very strange it's disorienting uh, is it Jodorowsky who does it's or not it's not Jodorowsky there's Geiger it's Geiger and I think filtered through Jodorowsky I mean these kind of legends of sci-fi and Proto-graphic novel and weird alien design all collaborated on it it unfolds at a totally w- weird pace within its own kind of internal logic it's basically a horror movie in space
1: it's a haunted house movie in it,
2: exactly though. and um it's it's as deeply sinister and unsettling as any you know wide release hollywood movie has ever been it really is a total masterpiece but that's not really my endorsement Unofficial friend of the program, Virginia Heffernan, who has a forthcoming book and who should appear on the program um, for it, yesterday or the day before, um, wished everyone on Facebook a happy Whitson Day. And it reminded me of one of my favorite poems by Philip Larkin, The Whitson Weddings. It's um, truly one of the great poems ever written. And the conceit of it is um, Larkin or the poet is heading on a train from some agrarian suburb into central London. And he doesn't – he's not aware of the fact that it's Whitson when apparently in England many people get married. And as he goes from station to station, he sees the aftermath of weddings over and over and over again. It's almost like in a weird kind of stop motion. Because the
1: people, the married couple, the newlyweds have gotten on a train and so these are the people seeing them off. OK.
2: Exactly. And um, the way – it's so Larkin. It begins totally conversationally and informally. It then begins to tighten and tighten and tighten until the kind of you know astonishing or dazzling metaphysical you know observation hits you sort of in the face all right let me just read a tiny bit of it yes from cafes and banquet halls up yards and bunting dressed coached party annexes the wedding days were coming to an end all down the line fresh couples climbed aboard the rest stood round the last confetti and advice were thrown and as we moved each face seemed to define just what it saw departing children frowned at something dull fathers had never known success so huge and wholly farcical the women shared the secret like a happy funeral while girls gripping their handbags tighter stared at a religious wounding free at last and loaded with the sum of all they saw we hurried towards london shuffling gouts of steam and it goes on and on and on to this just you know perfectly astonishing larkiness ending. all right anyway julia thank you so much thanks steve laura thank you that was fun
1: it was indeed. Thank you.
2: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lindsay Albrecht and Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult fest for julia turner and laura miller i'm stephen Metcalf. we'll see you soon
3: you were so smart then in your jacket and coat my softest red scarf was warming your throat winter was on us at the end of my And I never love England more than when covered